recommendation there would also be to every entrepreneur is like, if you see entrepreneurship as a lifestyle, you cannot really fail, mm-hmm. right? Because you say that is my life. Yeah. So, and part of my life is that things might not work out well. This episode is brought to you by WHU, the Otto Beisheim School of Management. WHU is reshaping the way students learn about business, management, finance, and entrepreneurship through its innovative programs and partnerships in Germany and across the globe. To learn more about this globally ranked university, visit whu.edu today. Hey folks, Garrett here. In this latest episode of the Most Awesome Founder podcast, we introduce Jan Reichelt co-founder of reference management software company Mendeley, which was acquired by Reed Elsevier in 2013, and the PDF browser plugin company Capernio, which is now called EndNote Click, acquired by Clarivate in 2018. Jan's been an advisor to the supervisory board of SAP, managing director of Web of Science, Freeman of the City of London, and TechCrunch's European Founder of the Year in 2013. He's currently a founding partner and GP of 10X Founders, a Munich-based early-stage investment fund backed by over 200 world-class entrepreneurs and business angels. Today, we'll be discussing Jan's founder journey, from VHU to building and exiting two academic research startups to becoming an angel investor and now VC. But rather than butcher Jan's fascinating background any further, I'll pass the talking stick to the man himself. Coming to you from WHU, on the banks of the Rhine River, in beautiful Fallendar, Germany, this is the best and most awesome founder podcast. A show about entrepreneurs, innovators, advisors, and educators, and the stories that make them who they are today. Jan, welcome to the show, mate. Well, thanks. Hi, Jared. Nice to meet you. Thanks for having me. It's yeah, uh, great, great to be here. Yeah, yeah, man. I've been looking forward to this conversation since we we first met. I guess almost a couple of years ago when uh, um, I was yeah. recruiting you to participate in the the first cohort of the Vehau Accelerator. And uh, yeah, it's a while ago now. Yeah. It is. It is. And um, I know your your feedback and insights are appreciated. So many of those teams are are kicking ass and and growing. And um, so it's really nice to kind of be able to share um, some of the earlier founder journeys. You know, I think we're Vehau is now facing the next generation coming up of entrepreneurs. And I think the, the culture and the energy is is stronger than ever. And as someone that uh is a big believer in mentorship and learning from the successes and mistakes of of others. I think this is a great opportunity to uh, to introduce your story to the rest of the Vehau community and the and the startup community in in general. Yeah, well, well, I hope it's interesting. I have a feeling it will be, man. So um, we start all of our episodes in the same way with uh, a little bout of storytelling. So what would be great is if you could kind of tell us a little bit about your founder journey, where you come from and kind of the steps you took and how you got to where you are today. Okay. Yeah, sure. No problem. Uh, yeah. Well, so of course, the question is, where should I start? Right. <laughs> it's like, um, uh, I guess, since we are kind of having this conversation because it's rooted in the WHO, WHO relationship. So maybe maybe let's start there, right? Uh, once upon a time, you know, many <laughs> moons ago, when I actually decided to go to WHO, it was interesting because actually I was more of a technical person. So at school, I had physics and mathematics, and I was trying to look for more of a technical degree. But then I met oh, people at WHO, and I saw the WHO, I visited the WHO, and I was just convinced of the concept, but I had to let go of my technical um, interest because obviously Vehau was just purely business. But uh, that was kind of how it all started. So I joined Vehau. I studied there from 2000 to 2004. So I was uh, still in the Diplome Kaufmann track. Yeah. So we were 85 people back then in, in the Diplome course uh, quite a while ago now. And uh, it was an amazing time. Uh, hopefully, many people who studied at VHU will share this experience. And at VHU, I think one of the things that I try to do is always uh, 
B, also with people that are a little bit complementary to me. And it's like one of the things that have stuck with me throughout my entrepreneurial career, actually trying to find people who are different to me and yet sharing the same value system. So I went through Behaou, um, did uh, e-business and um, entrepreneurship as some of the courses because I was just interested in being able to create something. And after VHU, when many of my colleagues went off to investment banks and consulting companies, I didn't feel I was ready for that. I think in general, I was a little bit of a late starter in many regards. And so I tried to find a way of how to postpone any professional decision. And then there was the electronic business professor at VHU, who then took on a professorship position at the University of Cologne. Mm. And he asked me if I wanted to join him to build up the Department of Business Information Systems at the University of Cologne. And for me, that was was amazing. So I had like three opportunities suddenly at once. One was, okay, go back to a little bit of a technical uh, area with business information systems and, and pursue a PhD. The second one uh, was actually, you know, spend more time at a bigger university because we are obviously is a small place and a small university. And then be in a place where you could have fun, right? Mm. Cologne definitely was a more fun sure. place than Falenda. <laughs> oh, I, I did like Falenda. <laughs> so I went to Cologne with him. Uh, and I would say I figured fairly quickly that I'm actually not a good researcher. So I eventually dropped out of my PhD degree. But what was great is that through my attempts to become a PhD, I figured that many of the people in academia actually have a problem because nobody is taking care of them. So you have all the great software in the typical consumer industries to share and collaborate, but no one would look at the academic world because it's kind of a hidden niche. Like it's non, what I call non-obvious problem that people in this niche have. And so we then started to build software to solve our own problem, which is yet even today is still one of the criteria that I look at when I also invest or when I started investing as business angel and now also as, as a VC investor is like, okay, if there's somebody trying to build a company in order to solve their own problem, I think that's to me a strong indicator that it's worthwhile having a chat with that person. Sure. The, uh, so the found, I'm, I'm just curious, yeah, I'm just as a just to clarify on that. Did you start building these solutions while you were still a doctoral student? Or did you say, all right, I'm wrapping this up. I want to go out and, and build a company? No, both at the same time. And the oh. PhD arguably was a little bit of an excuse. Hmm. to find something a bit more meaningful, which I knew I would enjoy later on. So when you do a PhD, right, you do a little bit of research, you do a little bit of teaching, but you have lots of time besides it and you earn a little bit of a, of a salary, right, if you work at the department. So you could cover your, your time, you could have a good, ex you have a good excuse if nothing comes out of it hmm. eventually because you say, yeah, I was doing my PhD, right? In, in my case, obviously it resulted in something, luckily, so... Well, I didn't finish my PhD. I did finish uh, a startup that went on eventually to help many other PhDs. So hopefully my contribution is still worthwhile. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah. Cool. So, so you felt the pain of this problem that you didn't have the tools that were that you felt that you needed to do, you know, the research the way that you wanted to. And you decided that, well, there's no solution out there. So I'm just going to build it myself. Yeah, absolutely. So I at already at VAU, um, one of my best friends there was Victor, who eventually became my co-founder also. Also very different character from me, but absolutely the same humor, absolutely the same um, style of working and so on. And he went on to do a PhD uh, in marketing at the University of Weimar <clears throat> and me at in Cologne. So we both have the same pain, which is you as a researcher, you have like very quickly, hundreds, if not thousands of PhD, uh, PDF documents, research documents that you need to read, digest, annotate, share, collaborate on. And how would people organize this? Like they would create folder structures on, on, their, on their hard disk, like, you know, whilst already at that time, and this was 2006, seven, uh, you had iTunes, right, to organize your MP3 files. And then there was a document that actually says, why can't I organize my research papers like I organized my MP3 files in iTunes? And absolutely, why can't you? Because nobody had done it before. Mm -hmm. So we went on to actually develop that software, which was meant to solve just our own problems. So we thought, like, let's develop the software. 
and then sell licenses to the software. So we didn't really have a huge vision initially behind that. Uh, but when we worked on the concept and said, like, okay, now that we're talking to so many other PhDs and other researchers, and they all seem to have the same problem, what actually would this the world look like if everybody was using this software and we could then connect the little individual databases that each of us then builds, anonymize the data, and then connect it on a global server. You could suddenly very quickly see what's going on in research. What are engineering students in Germany looking at? Which topics, which research papers are they reading compared to the engineering students in Japan? And if they were working on similar topics, well, now we would have a way to connect them. And all this wasn't possible before. So it started all with this idea of becoming more productive. And then suddenly the bigger vision emerged where we said like, wow, if you then have this huge, massive global database, all anonymized information, then suddenly you could really push research, academic research, you know, massively forward by connecting people, gaining insights, figuring out which university is about to publish which in which journals, which topics, and suddenly you create a whole new world of transparency in the world of research, which was kind of still so slow and mm. tiring to work in. I mean, at least that was my experience. And yeah. that's where it then became suddenly quite big. Mm. Interesting. So I, I'm curious about the the kickoff of building Mendeley. You're you have a technical background. You are, you know, quite technically minded. But you joined a, another a former Vehauer as well, who is a marketing guy. Um, is that how the roles in the early days were split up? Were you the technical guy and he was the business guy, or did you bring in bring in other technical people to kind of drive that the product side of things? Yeah, so I was a technical guy to figure out that I'm not a technical guy, <laughs> so to say. So I was actually a programmer mm -hmm. before going to Vehau. Mm -hmm. So I did develop code in uh, in Pascal and C and C++ and so on, but only to actually realize, hey, ah, I will never become a great developer. I will never become a great software engineer. It's not kind of where really my strength is, but I know how software engineering works, let's say at least high level. So we knew we were quite thin on the technical side, Victor and me. And so we looked into our network to actually identify a third person, which we finally found, uh, who was a computer science student, Paul. And so in the end, it was the three of us who were the co became the co-founders of Mendeley. And Paul had lived in London at that time already. And we then, when we discovered, hey, this vision is suddenly much bigger, this could become really a big thing. We then said, okay, let's go for it. Uh, we then looked for venture capital. We knew it was going to be difficult in Germany. I mean, consider this was 2008. It was really the early days of the startup ecosystem in Germany. And when we got the opportunity to think about London as our home, because we got investors based in London with Passion Capital and uh, another international investor, Ambient Sound Investments, which were the Skype founding engineers, mm -hmm. we said, like, yeah, clearly, let's move to London and let's seize the opportunity there. Also, because the academic markets, obviously, UK and US are much bigger than the German mm -hmm. uh, academic market. It was English, English speaking, and you could straight from the beginning build a company with an international perspective rather than, again, like, you know, this is now 15 years ago, a German company focusing on the German market. So we were quite immediately thinking global about, global, in a global fashion about this. So we moved everything into London, set up shop there and, and then started. Yeah. It's, uh, it's interesting to hear that because I started my first venture back company in München. That was 2009, 2010. And when we got to the point of and also with a more global vision. Um, and when we got to the point where we were ready to raise capital, we found it really, really difficult in Germany at that time. There were some investors. We got some crazy, crazy terms, uh, but there wasn't much to choose from. And there was overall, at least as an Auslander looking in, I kind of had this feeling that the startup ecosystem was really focused inward, right? You know, this was rocket era, maybe at its peak, even yes. where it's like, let's see these great business models that are happening elsewhere. Let's build something similar for the German markets. Meanwhile, the people that were creating kind of things on a disruptive global scale were maybe challenged. And, you know, I always had this hypothesis, is this creating a brain drain, right? Are the people that are innovating in other ways just going to go follow 
follow the capital. It sounds like for you, it was a combination of not only capital, but needing access to those bigger markets. Is that is that a fair assessment? What brought you there? Yeah, absolutely. I think yeah, it was clearly clearly capital was one of the aspects. Again, like the VC scene in, in Germany at that time was like very small. But it's it was also putting yourself into an environment that's that's more uh helpful to building a global company. And in our particular case, the strategic consideration that the top universities are all English speaking, US, UK, it was kind of almost a no brainer to move to London. We did consider the US, but we just didn't have enough connections to the US. And from an immigration perspective, the US also was more difficult. UK at that time, you know, was Brexit wasn't on the on the on the cards. You could just move there and, and settle there and just start working. So um okay. was was pretty straightforward. And what you're saying in terms of you know, VC scene or let's say startup in Germany. One of the things that I'll now I use now that I'm back in Germany. So I've lived in the UK for about 12 years. I'm back in Germany since about a year. One of the things I like to say is like when I when I am in, in the UK, I always thought I was German. Because of course, you know, the UK way of saying things when they disagree with something, you know, it's not like, oh, I disagree. Yeah. It's more like, oh, you might want to reconsider if this is really a good decision. <laughs> you know, it's all like very subtle. Mm-hmm. And so I always felt like, oh, I'm I'm the German. And then you come back to uh, to Germany and you think, oh, no, I'm not German anymore because <laughs> these Germans can be really tiring. <laughs> so it's a very, very fascinating experience. I feel you, bro. I've been dealing with that my whole life <laughs> being being half and half is like I'm I'm too direct for one side and not direct enough for for the other. But I, I think that begs an interesting question, right? Because I, I believe so much of entrepreneurial success is about, you know, who you know, right? Your your networks are so incredibly valuable, especially in the early stages when you're trying to cobble together resources and talent and capital and things like that. How was it for a, a couple German guys moving across the channel and building something for the first time and in a place that you weren't particularly familiar with? Yeah, definitely a challenge. But the thing I think the character trait of, of, of many entrepreneurs is a certain level of naivete, right? Mm-hmm. You do not know what you get yourself into because if you knew, you wouldn't start it in the first place. Mm-hmm. So we went there not really knowing what to expect us. And then at the same time, the fact that we wanted to solve this problem, which is more like an intrinsic motivation rather than an extrinsic motivation of finding something to do. It was like, yeah, we want to solve this problem. Now we get the opportunity. So all these things together, then in a combination of being in a in a global capital, London arguably is like one of the global capital uh, capitals of met, met, uh, metropolises of the world. You know, the network, everybody goes there to achieve something. Nobody goes to London to retire. So everybody right. wants to be there to be on full speed, right? So the combination of those factors actually were very, very beneficial. Um, it wasn't easy, obviously, but it was such a great experience. And as an entrepreneur, you just feel the thrill despite all the pain. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, we 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 obviously did well and and you just do not look so much at the complications. You just go for it and then eventually you will either succeed or you don't. I mean, either way you will know. Right. Well, I love the fact that you brought up intrinsic motivation. I feel like that's a that's a story that I tell all the time to aspiring founders. Like if you're in it for the money and the recognition, your chances of success are going to be a lot lower. If you're really trying to create value, solve a pain point, do something that, you know, you simply just want to do, that's uh that is yeah. a, a recipe for success. So I want to bring it back. So now you're in London with your co-founders. You're you're start you've raised some capital, you're starting to build Mendeley. Where does it go from there? Oh yeah, well, Mendeley was an absolute roller coaster, and I think every entrepreneur will be able to relate to that, right? Like from the outside, it always looked like amazing. All oh, those guys are doing well, and how are you doing this? And like, you know, you lift the carpet and you think like, "Ooh, that stinks," <laughs> you know? It's like really terrible. And like, if you are in the entrepreneur shoes, you just see like the eighty percent that don't work, and you're annoyed, and then you know, it's, it's really, really tiring. I mean, I think everybody can relate to that. So it was really a struggle, but at the same time, it was just so exhilarating to build Mendeley that you overcome all those struggles. Now, um, 
we did raise venture capital. Initially, we started with angel capital, then venture capital. We did another round, another round, constant fundraising, which is you know, one of the things, you know, which I felt was really yeah, tiring. Also talking yeah. to non-entrepreneur VCs, mm -hmm. which kind of brought me to where I am right now. But, you know, we'll come to that maybe a little bit later. Mm -hmm. We did expand to the U.S. I actually went for two years uh, to New York, built our office there because it was the biggest market to us. So I got to spend in two years in the in the U.S. Again, it was kind of an interesting experience because when I went there, we didn't have a lot of money. Yes, we had venture funding, but like back then, you know, you didn't have huge rounds. You got, you know, at best a couple of million. So I stayed in a hotel with a shared bathroom, you know. Yeah. <laughs> so it was amazing, amazing times. And we struggled a lot. We did have a lot of success on the one hand, but on, on the other hand, obviously, we struggled with a lot, um, you know, uh, building the company, a global company from the outset. But uh, because we did something that was so worthwhile and addressed the need of so many people, that carried us through. And I think Mendeley, I would say many people in the industry would say that Mendeley was kind of the opening act to what is now called open science, mm -hmm. so that people have a more open attitude towards science, that science needs to be more collaborative, you know, more driven by technology, sharing information, sharing knowledge, and so on and so on. In any case, though, uh, at any uh, most of the companies that I see, uh, both as an investor as well as just a friend to other entrepreneurs, you know, you come to a point where it's just really not going well. And obviously, we had that too. Mm -hmm. And uh, the two things that really were a challenge to us was when we expanded to the U.S., have a this this the, the cultural disruption that having a second office then suddenly brings with it and uh, that you know keeping a cohesive coherent structure coherent culture that was very very tiring required a lot of effort i at that point i had not expected that actually a lot of the work that you do is just like really actually communicating and mm. being with people rather than actually doing what i would call more productive stuff like yeah. i don't know compiling an excel table doing user testing and all this stuff no it's like the soft stuff that mm -hmm. takes a lot of time and then the other thing, obviously, at some point, the money runs out, right? And uh, and uh, things are not going well. And so with Mendeley, we had this particular situation where we uh, just didn't grow fast enough to the appetite of the venture capitalists. Yeah. <clears throat> and so we were running out of money. And venture capitalists usually are very good at sniffing this out. So we were not growing fast enough and we needed more money trying to raise a round. And eventually we were only able to get a term sheet from one UK-based additional investor at that point. And he then, eventually, after we had signed the term sheet, they came back to us, said, let's renegotiate. We don't like something about the term sheet. And we were kind of upset because it's not nice. You don't do that. You've we've time, signed, the, signed the term sheet. Why do you need to come back to us? I'm fine. Anyway, we were with the backs to, to the wall. We needed to do uh, what they wanted because otherwise we would run out of money. We had at that point uh, two months cash in the bank left. Mm. But you and, weren't for you weren't we did, to a down round or anything, were you at that point? You it was yeah, still a well, good round. Yeah, we didn't really know what the other alternative were uh, alternatives were at that time. Uh, you know, we we hadn't spoken really about this topic to the existing investors because the existing investors obviously wanted to have proof from another third investor coming in. You know, setting the price and so on. So after we had agreed to this change in terms with this investor, you know, a couple of days later, again he called me and said, "Ah, there's another thing we need to change." I'm like, "I mean, come on, are you kidding me?" But again, like, what are you going to do? Fine, you know, let's be pragmatic. Let's do it. And then that happened a third time. And in this mm. case, I, I can remember what it was. It was complete founder revesting after we had put like oh, yeah. um, four years into this company, sweat, blood and tears. And we just felt like, you know, he's really not getting us. I mean, if this was the problem, we wouldn't have started, right? Mm -hmm. So at that point, then Paul, Victor and I, we said like, look, you know, it's not going to work with this investor. So we have two months cash in the bank. Mm. Yeah, fine. That's it. You know, we just didn't make it. You know, we had four years, great time, did a lot of good stuff. I think many people value the contribution that we have, but that's the end. Mm. And we spoke to our existing investors about that, that we did not want to work with this VC because if they come back to us all the time with, you know, how is this going to be once they are on the cap table? Mm -hmm. So we called it a day and said, that's it. And our existing investors, however, found this quite bullish that we were prepared to close mm -hmm. down and say, we're not prepared to work with this VC in mm -hmm. this constellation. So they threw us a lifeline. Mm -hmm. They actually gave us more money. Wow. And then 
about a year later, suddenly we had this amazing acquisition offer from Elsevier, Relic, now part of Relics, right, on the table. Uh, and we said, like, well, I mean, you know, this near-death experience and this roller coaster of then suddenly pulling it out again, getting back on track, and then getting this amazing acquisition offer was just like, I think, the most exciting and as well emotionally tiring experience I ever mm. had in my life. And uh, that is something really, really fascinating. Wow. Wow. That is that is a fascinating experience. I, I'm curious a little. I mean, I, I've been a user of of Mendeley. I think it's what you guys created was great. It was one of the reasons I was so interested in having this conversation with you. But you're you're also explaining the story where, you know, you were you were at the end of your runway. Um, you got thrown a lifeline to kind of stay afloat. And then a year later, you're getting an acquisition offer. Can you share a little bit about what you think made you a compelling acquisition? Was it your customer base? Was it the rich data you had? Was it the technical infrastructure? Because Reed Elsevier, I mean, I know it's that's been rebranded and changed hands a few times. But that's a pretty exceptional organization. What did they see in Mendeley that made you an attractive uh, purchase? Yeah. It was a very strategic acquisition. And I would say, even to this day, I think Elsevier did absolutely the right thing. And as did, as did we, right? Because Elsevier had, has a huge network, uh, huge reach. We were able to just scale so much more quickly. Um, the reason why Elsevier eventually acquired uh, Mendeley was a strategic reason. So what happens in this industry, and it's very specific to this industry, so it might be completely different in other industries with other products. In our industry, however, the way that the commercials work is that a publisher signs a deal with an institution about access to published content. So publisher A goes to institution B and says, you know, four or five million per year, uh, you get access to this and this type of content. And usually the institution that says, okay, fine, they will bark at the prices and the price increases, but in the end, they are mostly price takers and sign the deal and then provide this content to the researchers through some mostly clumsy technology back in the day. What Mendeley did then was suddenly we hoovered up all the researchers because in this relationship, because between publisher and institution, nobody would think about the researcher. This was because they were not part of the commercial deal, right? So the publisher would sign the deal, say, thank you very much, speak to you next week or in three years' time when the contract is up, and then we'll revisit. And in the interim, nobody would think about the researchers. Now, we were owners, so to say, uh, of the researchers, which was a consequence of us developing a researcher-focused product. So what then happens is that us owning the researchers, we would suddenly move ourselves into that relationship between publisher and institution. And we were disintermediating that relationship between the publisher and the researcher. So you can see this in a negative way, and certainly there is a negative uh, aspect to it, like a threat to the publisher, but it's also an opportunity. Because if you know what the researcher wants, what they are reading, how they're interacting with your content, you can also gain competitive insight into what what topics you should develop, which journals you should start, and so on and so on. So Elsevier saw it exactly in both ways. They saw, well, if you're not going to do anything, that's a threat. At the same time, and that is something that I respect very highly uh, uh, from from Elsevier's perspective, is they actually also saw the opportunity. Mm -hmm. And that's why our strategies were aligned about actually providing something useful to the market uh, and then building on on top of that. And so that's why the acquisition eventually, I think, also was a very big success. And to this day, Mendeley is one of the biggest research uh, management tools out there. And Elsevier is firmly committed. And, you know, when we joined... I had to scale the team from 50 people to 200 people. We rolled out institutional versions. And so they, they, I think overall, it was a very good, uh, very good development. I, I mean, I particularly like the fact that the Mendeley brand survived. And it's, it's interesting. Now I kind of understand why it, that makes a lot of strategic sense as well, since you're the brand attached to the researcher, you know, and for the publisher to put yeah, it. Exactly. I mean, Elsevier is is a name, obviously, but it's not an end consumer brand as such, right? It's more, in that case, actually, the, the brand of the journal that is more 
visible to the end user researcher. And so since we, and effectively every journal is some, some sort of community, right? Some specialist community that gathers around that journal. And we would hoover up all this community in, in, in Mendeley as a workflow tool. And that's why Elsevier found it quite valuable because suddenly the whole community would be engaged with Mendeley and there was really deep engagement because it's a workflow tool. Right. Okay, so you get acquired in 2013, exciting. I assume you had a, a lockup for a while and you joined the, the parent company to grow this thing even further. Take it from there. What, yeah. what happened next? Yeah, so I did actually stay a little longer, um, primarily because I had a lot of fun. And I must say I had a good time as an, an, an acquired entrepreneur, which is also not always the case, right? Very often as an acquired entrepreneur, you know, after three months, you're sick of it already. Uh, luckily, that wasn't the case for me because they had huge budgets gave me a lot of freedom to build things. Um, and so it was, uh, I had a very good experience. Um, and eventually though, obviously, you know, you have some some different type of energy. You feel like you can actually get more done if you were in a different type of environment. And at LCVI, we, as Mendeley, we acquired another small startup then later. And I really clicked with the founder there and the founding team there. And so that we then eventually said, hey, you know, there's still so much to do in the academic space. Let's do something together. And it's kind of a sequel that we then did to Mendeley. So Mendeley was more about once you had the research document, how do you get the most out of it? How do you collaborate on it, organize it, and so on, cite it? But there is another problem that we had also wanted to solve with Mendeley, but never get, never got to address really because of these path dependencies, which is getting access to research papers in the first place. You know. Very much it depends on which university you are at and then whether you're on campus or off campus, you need to log into VPN or then there are like access technologies that are like Shibboleth and who the fuck cares about Shibboleth? I mean, <laughs> right. no no end user research say, oh, I need to use this great Shibboleth thing. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter. You know, you just, in the consumer industry, again, you go to YouTube, you type something, you press play and it's there. Right. Not so in the research world, right? You have all these hoops and hurdles to go through in order to just get this damn PDF that the institution has paid for in the first place already anyway. So it should be just at your fingertips, but it's not. So what we built then is we said like, okay, why can't we just follow the researcher where they are, where they do research, follow them across the internet. And if they come to a relevant page where they should get access to a research paper, we just give it to them because we know they have access to it already. And we did this by building a browser plugin. And this browser plugin would then, you know, activate on research-focused pages. And then when the paywall would show up because you're not on campus or you're not in your VPN, we would figure out the background technology and still give it to you without you needing to proactively log in through all these like antiquated institutional technologies. And I knew at that time, if the technology works, we have a case. Because I knew from Mendeley, I knew from myself, and I knew from the industry this is really a significant problem. There was at that time actually started to emerge a um, another website which is called SciHub, uh, which is a website that would uh, provide illicit, I mean, illicit access to, to research papers in a basically piracy copyright. And a lot of the, re the users of that website were actually users at institutions in the US. So people who have access still use the piracy site. And why do they do this? Well, because it's easier. It's easier to go there, just download from there, instead of uh, having to go through um, all the login technologies um, of, the, of the institution. So I knew we, if, if the technology works, I knew we would have a case to build something meaningful. Now, what happened then was, at that time, Thomson Reuters IP and Science, uh, so they had a business unit called IP and Science, uh, which were kind of the business unit developing products for the academic market. They, they came to us. They had wanted to acquire Mendeley already, but didn't get to because Elsevier was you know, faster, prepared to pay more, and so on and so on. So they came to us very, very quickly and said, look, uh, we want to acquire you because, again, they, they didn't get to acquire Mendeley. They saw the case for Copernio. They saw it worked and said, look, if we put this together with Web of Science, which is kind of the gold standard in every academic institution in this world, we can scale Copernio, bring this solution to millions of researchers within a year or two years time and just solve this problem. Just get rid of it. You have the technology, we have the distribution. And so again, like as someone who's more intrinsically motivated any, than anything else, like not like, oh, I need to build the Jan Reichel kingdom, but I want to do something that's worthwhile. 
we agreed to the acquisition under the condition that I could then actually build this within, together with my co-founders and co-founder Ben, could build this within Web of Science. And so, so we did. I became a broader responsibility for the whole Web of Science, uh, which uh, is uh, a $250 million business. Um, funnily enough, I became responsible for EndNote, which is the biggest competitor of Mendeley. <laughs> so I was then responsible, so to say, for kind of, you know, building my own competition. And then obviously uh, Companio and then Pavlons. And so responsible for a whole bunch of digital products, a couple of hundred uh, people, again, global business, lots of responsibility, had a great experience within that company again, was treated very, very well. And joined my time and and brought Companio. I think to this day, Companio is one of the most downloaded plugins, browser plugins overall. Uh, I think there's more than two million downloads, probably more than more now already. But uh, again, I think it worked really well. I think it was a very good acquisition, um, and it did really well also for the academic industry. I want to ask you about that acquisition as well because I think it, it's really interesting, and maybe you can connect the dots on on one thing. You know, you you found this new kind of co-founder team that you connected with. You saw another problem. You had experienced the pain of. You wanted to solve it. And it sounds like relatively early, you got this acquisition opportunity because, as you yep. said, you kind of built it under the umbrella of Web of Science. Where was Copernio at the stage that the acquisition happened? Did you have product market fit? Was it a growing company or did they say, hey, the tech it looks like it's ready. Let's acquire it and incubate it under the umbrella of the mother. No, I, no, we had we definitely had product market. We had, we had a couple of I think like tens, maybe even hundreds of thousands of users. So we were quite the, the case was clear. So it was not just speculative. Um, it was not acquihire or anything like that. It was it was clear that there was a product product market. What we did not have at that point yet was commercialization. We didn't have that in place. Uh, that was too early. So the, the plan would have been, okay, let's build the product, get to product market fit. We didn't need really venture funding so early on because obviously me, as well as my co-founder, who we eventually acquired under the umbrella of Mendeley previously, we had like money in the bank. So we could tinker around initially without actually um, diluting too much. We would have planned with a funding round at some point um, and then try to go it alone. Um, that was definitely an option. Had the offer from Clarivet which then was Thompson Reuters IP and Science rebranded as Clarivet, had the offer of scaling this up and giving me that broader responsibility, not being that good, uh, you know, not being such such a good case to get this product out so quickly to so many millions of, of researchers. So two exits in five years. I mean, that's that's impressive within itself. You've now joined a world-renowned brand. You're leading a, a pretty large organization at that point with a lot of resources at your disposal. Quite a big change from being a startup founder, I imagine. Um, how did that yeah. unfold and where did that take you? And when did you decide that it was time for the next journey? Yeah, well, I mean, what you say is this overnight success that takes 10 years, no? Is right. That, so you say five years. You can also say, well, we really started to tinker around with the idea of Mendeley in 2006. Mm -hmm. And I left Clarivet in... 2020. So effectively, it's 14 years, right? Mm -hmm. So it depends on which perspective. Still, still good numbers, mate. It's still 14 years, two yeah. acquisitions. That's pretty solid. But yeah, I, I understand. Yeah, no, I'm by yeah. no way, no way I'm complaining. No right. way I'm complaining. So, well, so Claret was also a very good experience. Uh, I got to see another organization, and I think it's a it's a really worthwhile experience for an entrepreneur to be in these organizations and understand how they work and also actually quite dysfunctional at some point because I do think it equips you a lot with knowledge about the next startup, how to set it up, what are the dynamics that exist, as well as, I believe, um, I hope it's true, but we'll see, uh, as an investor, right? Because if you are now a sparring partner to an, um, to an entrepreneur, you know, having seen the full cycle, I think is quite useful as well. And when it uh, comes to explaining to startups, okay, how do you position yourselves? You know, should I actually build relationships with these corporates that are actually my competitors or not? Like all this type of dynamic is, is kind of worthwhile. Um, I eventually left um, primarily in this case, I think, uh, because it became very financially driven, the whole organization. It was American run. It was then we actually floated on the uh, New York Stock Exchange. And uh, there was a big, big emphasis on the share price. And 
I totally respect that. I'm not saying it's a bad thing, but it's not the thing that motivated me most. It was yeah. more like, you know, doing something useful, impactful, creating stuff. And that became a little bit a second priority in this environment. So I, I had started to invest already as a business angel in a couple of companies, just mainly because I enjoyed it. And that's then kind of where we reconnected with some of the other people now running 10x founders or the partners behind 10x founders who all have a very similar experience. Everybody kind of builds startups, uh, some successful, some not so successful, uh, some obviously enough successes that balance out the failures. Uh, but everybody does this uh, out of passion. And so we said, look, if we do what we do anyway, because it's our passion, and we are successful in terms of you know, building meaningful relationships as well as financial success, we might as well just do it properly, right? So, you know, let's let's go and let's go and, and do it and support. Like, what's the way to support more entrepreneurs? Is yeah, we go to our network, raise capital that scales us, leverages us, and and provides more support to uh, the European startup ecosystem. So that's then where we joined forces as the partner team. We went to our network. And then based on the historic track record that we all had as both investors as well as entrepreneurs, we raised 160 million euros yeah. early stage fund from about, as you said, initially 200 individual entrepreneurs. Again, yeah. like I think the way how we work is very, very much network driven. So in the first fund, we because we wanted to set the culture, we did not accept, did not have any institutional um, LP. It was all really driven by our network. And the network actually also wanted to support us and say, like, you've done so many great things. You know, if I could give you money, I would. And so, yeah. okay, fine. Yeah. Uh, so we initially had a target size of 120 and with a hard cap of 150. And then we had lots of demand and then another 10 minutes. So we capped it at 160 mm -hmm. eventually and uh, wow. started investing in April 2021. Yeah. Wow. I mean, first of all, 160 million first fund that's impressive, mate. Like that, you don't hear that story very often. And it, like you said, it's a testament to the network. But, but I want to unpack it a little bit. As a guy that's raised a pretty significant amount of venture capital from non-entrepreneur investors, and yeah, I, I have plenty of horror stories. I could, I could dig up some PTSD about some of those experiences pretty quickly. But I'd like to hear from you. Um, because clearly you appreciate that ethos too of you know being able to as a founder being able to get checks from people that have been on that journey with you why do you think it's important to have investors that have been entrepreneurs in the past i think there's there's to me there's always one very good example which was one of my problems when i was an entrepreneur and I think which exemplifies very, very well what startup founders might think in the relation in their relationship with investors. And that is how honest can you be with your investors? How sincere can you be with your investors? Which is both the health of the company as well as your personal emotional state. Right. And if you were completely honest as an entrepreneur, most of the time the health of the business is not great and your emotion, emotional state is very stressed. Mm -hmm. So now imagine you tell this constantly to your investor, right? The investor gets scared if they are non-entrepreneurial investors, if they are like, and, and everything has advantages and disadvantages. So let me, I know it's potentially a bit controversial what I'm saying, but I'm doing this in order to picture the, the spectrum. But if you have a purely financial investor, someone who has a financial like investment type of background, they will look at, oh, what's happening to my money? You know, the money is gone. And if then they, they, I hear from the entrepreneur, you know, all the problems and all this kind of stuff, I'm not going to fund this business in the next round. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to extend the lifeline of those entrepreneurs because my money is at risk. So I'm, I, I, in this case, I do not think that these types of investors have as much consideration for the problems of the entrepreneur as an entrepreneur, entrepreneurial investor who has been through that journey anyway. Mm -hmm. So if now... We have we have conversations between me and and the entrepreneurs. I'm like, you know, let's leave the bullshit away. I know it's not going well. So tell me, you know, and if it's just even have a chat. Yeah, yeah. I understand you, and I think there is a value in this. The question is, how do you measure that value? It's hard to measure, but I do think there's a value. And I'm not saying that this is the only type of investor an entrepreneur should have. I think financial investor brings a different type of discipline, which is also good. 
But I do think there's a particular value add that a, that a former entrepreneur as an investor can bring to this type of relationship, in particular in the early days. In the, you know, you nailed it on the head. I was just about to say, you know, in the early stages, to me, that's so important. And one of the challenges is when you have these very financially, you know, where they come from a financial background and they haven't been founders themselves, and they are so focused on, you know, the, the bottom line, it's not just... I, I think what it does to the founders is it puts them in a position where they don't feel safe being vulnerable, being transparent. And as a result, they kind of do the fake it till you make it thing, or they just, you know, they say everything's going great. And then what that eventually does is it erodes trust. And this is something that I talk to young founders so much about is, you know, you think of an investor as someone that's you know, giving you money to go out and do your thing. But in reality, you're kind of taking on another business partner almost, right? You're taking on someone that, you know, you could be in bed with for the next five, 10, 15 years, depending on the trajectory of your business. And you need to treat those relationships like almost like you treat your co-founder relationships. And that means you have to be able to be open and vulnerable and, and transparent. And sometimes that environment isn't, conducive to it. That's why I'm a big believer in what you guys are doing because, you know, if if I was a portfolio company of yours, I know you've been through those highs and lows. I know you've been through, yeah. you know, the uncertainty and the self-doubt and the imposter syndrome and all of those, you know, emotions yeah. that we go through. But if I can't share that with you, then I'm not going to be authentic yeah. and then you're not probably not going to trust me as much back, right? Absolutely. That's so true. And <clears throat> so there are two additional aspects. <clears throat> so I, when I look back at the entrepreneurial experience that I have, I think the most tiring thing was not, let's say, necessarily uncertainty. I mean, you know, it's going to be uncertain. It's not the working hours. You know, you have to work a lot. But it's this emotional stress that you have, <clears throat> you know, because, uh, and this brings me to my second point, because your private and personal life mixes with your professional life to some extent. And if you do not know, if you do not understand how to take entrepreneurship as a lifestyle rather than a professional mm -hmm. career choice, you know, as an investor, financial investor would do, you know, then, then I think that it's problematic in this relationship, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, being able to feel this emotional stress as well as being able to connect on this entrepreneurial lifestyle decision, I think is incredibly valuable. Now, I'm not saying that as an investor now, oh, because we can be open with each other, I'm I'm going to save your ass no matter what. So there are limits, obviously. But just being able to have the conversation and also being honest, look, no, I don't think it's worthwhile. Or no, try, you know, obviously, for example, one other question is like, which we had as, as the Mendeley founders when we were just shortly before bankruptcy is like, okay, how much should we really try? Like, you know, when is, when is enough enough? You, yeah. It's really hard. So being able to have these types of conversations in particular when it's not going well, and let's be honest, most of the time in the early stage, it's not going well because it's just full of problems. I think these are very, very cool conversations. Mm -hmm. And honestly, I do enjoy it. And quite frankly, it's also just a lot more fun than just looking at the numbers and our revenues going up or down or, you know, this type of stuff. Yeah. So I just enjoy it more as well. So this brings me to a question <clears throat> that's arisen that may be a little bit controversial as well. So forgive me if I, if I do that, but as an American that has built companies in Canada and Germany and the U S one of the things that I I've always recognized is different cultures understanding of failure. And um, I think most entrepreneurs, especially serial entrepreneurs that have done it multiple times at some point have faced, have faced either impending failure, potential failure, or actually full-on collapse. How do you see as someone that's built two successful ventures in the UK, have experience in the US, and is now supporting European and international startups from Germany, do you see culturally a difference still in fail culture and what's acceptable and what isn't in the different places that you've been? Yeah, I think so. I think there is definitely still a culture difference between the Anglo-Saxon approach mm -hmm. uh, and, the, and the German approach. It the, the gap has narrowed, but 
I don't think that the German culture is still as proactively embracing failure as much as the Anglo-Saxon culture. Um, again, I, I don't think it's a reason to complain. It's something worth realizing. I was lucky to experience the Anglo-Saxon culture in both of my startups. Um, arguably, I was very lucky also in, in, in my efforts. Uh, but I one of the things I also hope to bring back to Germany now that I'm back here after living in the US and the UK for the last 12 years is kind of bringing this kind of, you know, positive energy. Uh, even if it doesn't work well, you've still tried something worthwhile in your life. Right, rather than just sitting at the desk somewhere doing like maybe some not so meaningful work, you've actually tried to do something. You've tried to create something, and that just the fact that you've went out there and you tried something, I think, deserves the recognition. Yeah. The other thing is that <clears throat> I feel uh, my recommendation there would also be to every entrepreneur is like, if you see entrepreneurship as a lifestyle, you cannot really fail, mm-hmm. right? Because you say that is my life. So, and part of my life is that things might not work out well. So in my case, when we had this super stressful time with Mendeley, I always made sure I did a lot of exercise, you know, see my friends on the weekend. I started to travel to Brazil quite a lot for, uh, you know, uh, different reasons. You know, I had, a, I had a really good time, even though it was incredibly stressful. So had we failed after four years, indeed, because we would have had to close shop, I would still have been able to say, yeah, okay, it didn't work out eventually, but... I built something that delighted a lot of users. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, I had a good time because I enjoyed my time as an enter- entrepreneur, the flexibility I got, being able mm-hmm. to continue to do exercise, build my personal relationship. Mm-hmm. So, and if you see it in that way, it's very hard to actually just define it as failure. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And so that is kind of the way how I always have looked at mm-hmm. it and continue to look at it. Yeah. Um, yeah but arguably, it's kind of characterized by my personal experience. Well, I I mean, I I agree. And I like this approach of like, look, if entrepreneurship is your life and your lifestyle and your career path or however you want to define it, I I always think of it like uh, the way professional poker players think of it, right? And this isn't, I'm not saying that being an entrepreneur is gambling per se, but the way poker players look at it is they don't play to win the game. They they play to win the career, so they measure they measure their ROI in in years, not in yes. in tournaments or in games. So they're looking to be up for the year, not each day. And you know, I think that analogy works with founders. Is you know, you can be the best founder in the world, and some shitstorm, economic climate, competition, anything, yep. you can do everything right and still fail, or yep. you could be a total train wreck. And everything lines up perfectly and you have a huge success. The name of the game is what you do over over time. But the reason I I brought this up is, and I've mentioned this once on the podcast before, but where I come from in in Boulder, Colorado, we have a celebration each year for all the failed founders. And they get paraded down the street and carried on people's shoulders and celebrated. And I've I've asked this question so many times on both sides of the pond to investors is, would you rather invest in a founder that's failed or a founder that's never tried? And in the U.S., it's almost across the board, unless it was something unethical or stupid, you know, like I'll take the guy that's or girl that's made the mistakes and learn from those mistakes. I did once ask a very, very well-known VC in Germany that same question, and I got the opposite answer, you know, so... So this idea of um, it's okay if something doesn't work out, you know, get back on the horse and try again, and you'll be better and better each time you try, I think is a message that just maybe needs to be be shared more, not only to founders, but also to the investment community as well. Uh, totally. I mean, I can tell you here in our group of, of in our team shared by everyone in the team, the partners, the investment team, I think we'll definitely look at the person who has, quote unquote, failed, whatever that means. Yeah. Right. I mean, it's also a wide range of definitions what failed can mean. That's right. So obviously you have to look at it in a particular case. But for us, I think we would definitely value the entrepreneurial experience, which, again, also doesn't mean we wouldn't look at the unexperienced person because of certain Naivete also has an advantage, yeah. but definitely we would clearly value uh, the negative or let's say disappointing experiences that somebody might have had. 
Right, right. Well, I think that's a good segue. I want to ask you one more question about maybe you can kind of plug a little bit more what you're doing now with 10X. Like, can you tell us a little bit? We know you've raised a really nice fund, have some great partners on this. What's your What's your thesis? What do you guys focus on and uh, how's things going? Yeah, uh, well, so as I've said now a couple of times, I think we're, we're quite entrepreneurial investors. So our thesis is the entrepreneur it's not rocket science. I don't think you know many people would say something different from that. But I think we put particular focus on that. And another reason is that, given our past experience as entrepreneurs, having built companies as well as having already before having raised the fund for 10x founders, in aggregate, I think we've invested in more than 300 companies as business angels. So we have a huge network of entrepreneurs in 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 that environment of 10x founders. So I think everything for us is very, very much about the entrepreneur, the team, um, and so on. So, And as part of that, we try to be quite early. We try to focus on pre-seed and seed, and occasionally we do uh, a series A. I would characterize us as fairly uncomplicated investors in the sense of, you know, we'd say, okay, let's look at you and your company. What is your demand? What do you need? How can we help? And the very rarely like strict conditions, like, you know, oh, we need to have whatever 15 and a half percent on the cap table, or we only invest if that and that happens or so on. So we're also not focused on any industry because good ideas come from anywhere. Like, I mean, who would have thought that me after all would do something in academic publishing? Right? <laughs> I would never have thought that. So we try to not have any of these uh, preconceptions if possible. Um, try to be very broad investors across Europe. Uh, we do have, given our history, of course, like a little bit of a focus point in the Dach region, mm. uh, but we 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 have plenty of investments also outside, obviously. And um, yeah, early on, and then since we have a pretty big fund at this point in time, uh, we have a lot of follow-on reserves because we know, again, also from the Mendeley experience mm. uh, and the other partners obviously share this. It's important to have some dry powder to mm-hmm. continue to support the entrepreneurs. We like to co-invest also, mm-hmm. uh, both with business angel as well as other investors, because we believe in complementarity and bringing the best people around the table. And uh, we, I think, also quite fast. So mm-hmm. we've already done since the inception of the fund, 40 investments. Wow. So I think we're very quick, uh, flexible in the sense of uh, that we look at what is the requirements of the founder and the company, but yet at the same time determine. So if we back someone, then we'll swing our weight and our experience behind it. And effectively with one ticket, you get kind of the experience and the power and the network of, of seven, six, seven former entrepreneurs and the whole network around it uh, into your cap table. And I think that's that's a great value proposition. Um, and that's the feedback that we also get from the founders that we back. Mm, amazing. Yeah. So all of you founders out there listening, um, Sounds pretty sweet. Uh, experienced entrepreneurs, large fund, year two. So nice, nice entry point as well. And uh, and open to all types of innovations, right? That's great. Cool. Yeah, absolutely. Jan, so many more things I want to unpack, but I also want to be cognizant of time here. I could probably do this for hours. I know we talked offline. This is my my favorite thing to do is talk shop with, with smart people. But... All good things must come to an end. Um, we always end our podcast with kind of three questions that we ask all of the guests. Um, most of them probably don't like it, but they all get them anyways. So a um, little bit of reflection and a little bit of insight into the person. So the first thing I want to ask is you've had a really interesting journey, right? You've you've gone from student to academic researcher to entrepreneur to leading a large company to angel investing to VC through this kind of cool circuitous journey looking back with all of your experience what advice would you give to your younger self that you have learned on this journey that maybe you weren't aware of yeah well when i started out i certainly wasn't aware of some of the things that I know now. And one of them, I, I think I've mentioned this now, we've discussed it a couple of times, is kind of taking this, if you become an entrepreneur, taking it as a lifestyle. Mm-hmm. I think it will kind of put you in a different mood, different mindset, will help you to deal with difficult, more difficult situations. So take it as a lifestyle and 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 not just as a 
thing I want to start this startup or I want to make money or you know whatever it might be. I think it's more like really lifestyle choice. That's what I personally uh, feel was one of the big learnings. The second is I often see startup founders asking for advice. And as much as we can give advice and as much as we have made lots of experience, I my own feeling is that I could have trusted myself a lot more with my mm. gut instinct. In mm. the end, it's you who run the startup. It's you who knows what it's doing. So I think uh, I would always encourage entrepreneurs to be more confident and mm. in the sense of, you know, yeah, listen to advice. It's fine. But in the end, there's often a decision that's being taken just because you just feel it rather than you know it. And I think, you know, trusting in yourself is, is quite a good advice, which in hindsight, we could have done more in Mendeley's case, for example. And then the last thing I feel, uh, again, is more maybe a philosophical question rather than right or wrong. It's like, if you do something like this, do something that's worthwhile, right? That mm -hmm. motivates you, that's intrinsic, uh, solving something, a big problem, rather looking at this as a more kind of temporary thing or a transactional thing, you know, do something that matters because you're doing it as part of your lifestyle. So, you know, then it's, you might as well go for it. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of maybe the two, three mm -hmm. things that in reflection, I feel are, are, are good tips to share with uh, new entrepreneurs. Man, those are great tips. And the reason I like them so much is one, I, I share those tips a lot, but two, it's a nice insight into the fact that this shit is hard, right? It's hard. And there's a lot of uncertainty and there can be an emotional grind and you need to have your, your psychology and your heart and your life balance in the right place. I was teaching a class last week and I talked about this. And to me, the entrepreneurial experience, especially in the early stages of building a startup, just exacerbates whatever you already are. Yes. So if you're unhealthy and you're out of balance and you go into this journey, you're going to be more unhealthy and more out of balance. If you are well balanced and have a nice lifestyle and have your interests and passions, both with your, with your work and outside of it, it gives you this freedom and space to be able to double down on the, and the energy to double down on those things, right? So if you're going to go into it, you can have a great, great experience if you go into it prepared and ready. Yes, okay. I agree very much so. All right, a couple little quick, quick rapid fire ones. So always, I feel like you can learn a lot about a person by what they read. Now, I know you have a little baby at home, but probably still too young to be reading kids' books. So what is on your bedside table? What are you reading these days that you could share? Uh, well, uh, these days, uh, well, because I just recently became a dad, uh, you know, <laughs> reading time is fairly limited in the right. evenings, I must admit. Uh, but I... I I do want to say one thing, one book that really impressed me uh, was Sapiens, uh, mm. Brief History of Humankind. I mean, it's a no-brainer almost. Mm. Um, and the reason why I liked it, because it gives you so much perspective on why things are the way they are in this world. And uh, yeah, um, I like this book a lot, but uh, probably it's not a new tip. I think yeah. many people will have read it already anyway. Well, Harari is such a great writer too. He makes it's these things amazing. so accessible. Absolutely yeah. amazing. Agreed. Okay, one more. So when you put on the headphones... Whether or or in the car or at the gym, what yeah. is cycling on your playlist that you can recommend? So when I listen to music, I'm I'm uh, I'm a big fan of Latin American music. Nice. Um, Secret Insight. Uh, when I was in Cologne and enjoyed my time, which was part of the thing I wanted to do when I was in Cologne, I actually was working as a you might smile professional uh, salsa teacher. I became oh. a salsa instructor, so nice. really had my time off after VHU. <laughs> um, so I like I like the, the Latin American type of music, Brazilian music, uh, and so on. And then the other thing I do a lot is listen to uh, the Economist uh, podcasts. Mm. Nice. So there's a little bit more like the businessy stuff, mm -hmm. but I think uh, it's just a brilliant medium. The, the way they analyze things and look at things is just really very good perspective on on global issues. Yeah. Mm. Amazing. I haven't listened to that yet, but I that will be on my probably on my playlist for my flight tonight so and obviously i have uh all your podcasts uh shortlisted here i've <laughs> listened to some of them already not fully through yet but yeah obviously i'm gonna say that oh thanks for the plug buddy i appreciate you i appreciate <laughs> you man jan like i said before we started like i've been looking forward to this conversation i've been fascinated by the things that you've built and now even more fascinated by the 
the journey that you've taken and um you know thoroughly impressed by what you guys are building with with 10x founders as well so i very much look forward to to track in the the journey ahead and and seeing where everything goes but it was an absolute pleasure well thank you for the nice words and uh, yeah i i had fun thank you for setting this up oh i guess one other thing any uh where could people find you if they're interested in in your work? Can you do you have any plugs you want to share? Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm. Uh, I would say uh, you find me through the VAU circles. Obviously, you find me uh, on LinkedIn. Um, soon, we'll have a new website up and running. Uh, my email address is uh, jr at tenxfounders.com. So feel free to send stuff uh, along as well. Ideally with a reference uh, to this podcast, right? Yes. Uh, so that we know where it's coming from. And uh, yeah, that's that's the best way, I guess, to get in touch with me. Amazing. All right, 10xfounders.com. Um, yeah, once again, Jan, it was awesome. Look forward to uh, hopefully one day uh, doing this in person. So cheers, mate. Well, thank you very much. Take care. Well, folks, that was Jan Reichel, Behau alum, serial entrepreneur, and now VC. Stay tuned for our next episode launching every Wednesday morning. And as usual, if you like the show, please don't forget to like, subscribe, and leave a five-star review on your favorite streaming service. And if you didn't enjoy the show, just skip that part. Bis nächstes Mal.